and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I have Darcy, second co-host, with me today. How are you doing, Darcy? I am doing pretty good. How are you? I am trying to make my way through a disgusting cup of keto coffee this morning. What What is in keto coffee? Okay, keto coffee is literally so gross. First of all, I don't drink coffee, so that just in itself speaks volumes. But keto coffee has like instant coffee in it, like Nescafe or something like that. It has a scoop of that, a teaspoonful of butter, and a teaspoonful of MCT oil, which is medium triglyceride and something or another. It's supposed to like oh, get so your body into ketosis. Coffee. Yeah, it basically is like bulletproof coffee, but it okay. tastes absolutely fucking disgusting um i have tried to zhuzh it up with some like heavy cream and some stevia (laughs) and a little bit of cacao powder so that it's like a little delicious sugar-free hot chocolate with a touch of coffee flavoring but it just really tastes like that sounds disgusting (laughs) but i am somebody who does drink a lot of coffee and i drink my coffee black so wow none of that sounds you must have hair on your chest (laughs) well you know going through a phd program i think there are a few people that do drink coffee like don't that get through without drinking coffee and uh i don't think those people can be trusted because with as much garbage as we gotta do here if you don't drink coffee i don't i don't know what you're doing with your life to be honest with you i'm really the only person i know who doesn't drink coffee (laughs) <laughs> especially i'm from yeah, seattle too one so like who doesn't drink it it's like insane that anyone from seattle would not drink coffee and i remember in yeah. law school i was like shit i should drink coffee because this will help me and i tried mm-hmm. and it was just like nope <laughs> i was like studying for the bar exam and i was just like up doing a because i didn't study gradually i took a course obviously but i didn't study kind of gradually working my way up to the exam i just like took the course and kind of dicked around for about two or three months before the bar exam and then i was like oh shit i should study two nights before (laughs) so i just crammed and crammed and crammed and i lived on two liter bottles of mountain dew mixed with um and i had Rice Krispie Treats. So Rice Krispie Treats and Mountain Dew. And honestly, I probably have a brain tumor now because of it. (laughs) That stuff is so bad for you. Your insides are completely corroded now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Any problem I have health-wise is probably due to the vast quantities of Mountain Dew I drank during law school and studying for the bar exam. And I know how awful that shit is now, and I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. It's disgusting. But back then, I was like, hey, (laughs) I don't drink coffee. What else am I going to do to get that sugar and caffeine into my veins? Do you drink tea or no? I do drink tea. Um, I like the okay. Starbucks refreshers with that coffee bean extract, the green coffee bean extract. Oh, I haven't had that one. Let's jump into today's podcast since we've chit-chatted. Okay, so I really don't care for podcasts where they talk for 20 minutes prior to broadcasting um, for whatever topic they may have. And there are quite a few podcasts out there that talk for quite a bit of time before they actually get into the topics. Some go jump right in, but others like just have a lot of chit chat before. And I just feel like that's a little bit annoying when all you want to hear about is murder or crime. Yeah. I think, I think for some people they enjoy like the conversation. Other people are like, let's just get right into it. So 
We so, did just a couple minutes of chit chat and now let's just get right into it. We're going to satisfy both groups. I think we're walking a fine line trying to please everyone. But in any case, um, today's topic okay. we're going to talk about is a little bit of um, a diversion from our typical uh, murder type topics and some of the other things that we have had on the show in the past. Today, we're going to talk about some kidnapping um, cases out there. And I found this one that was in my mind, very interesting. Um, and it's something that came out in the news a little while ago, probably about 10 years ago. Um, but has kind of popped up here and there as people continue to update this particular case, but it's the Fritzel case. And I don't know if you've heard of this one. I have, it's very upsetting. Yeah. Um, this case first emerged in about 2008, um, a woman named Elizabeth Fritzel, she was born April 6, 1966, told police in Amstetten, Austria, that she had been held captive for 24 years by her father, Joseph Fritzel. Um, Joseph was born April 9, 1935. She claimed that he had assaulted, sexually abused, and raped her numerous times during her imprisonment inside a concealed area in the basement of the family home. And I find this case particularly disturbing for that exact reason. It was in the family home. So him and his wife, her mother, Elizabeth's mother, were living above this captive, concealed area where this woman was held for 24 long, just abysmal years. This abuse by Elizabeth's father resulted in seven children. Um, three of those remained in captivity with Elizabeth, and one died just days after its birth. The other three were brought upstairs by Fritzl and his wife, Elizabeth's mother, whose name was Rosemarie. Um, he reported them as foundlings. So he just said, oh, I found this baby. <laughs> let's let's raise this and baby. What year was let's see here. I'm going to get into some of the details, but it was in the 80s. So... Is that like a thing? Like people were just finding kids in I Austria? Don't know. In the 80s? Austria evidently has a lot of foundlings. I don't. I, I don't mm. really know. A little bit about Joseph. We're not going to get into too much significant detail about him because he seems like a real disgusting monster, and like I don't want to glorify or bring more uh, spotlight to him. But he was born in 1935 in Austria. In 1956, at age 21, he married Rosemarie, who was Elizabeth's mother. He was 21, she was 17. They had two sons and five daughters together, including Elizabeth. Uh, Fritzl reportedly began abusing his daughter Elizabeth in 1977 when she was just 11 years old. So he oh started gosh. in on her very, very, at a very, very young age. Um, after completing her compulsory education at around age 15, because there they 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 do their educational system is a little bit different. Their mandatory educational system ends at around age 15. But Elizabeth, when she graduated from that, started a course to become a waitress. So there they have like career type courses, sort of um, for every single potential career that you would have almost. Um, and it depends on like a vocational school. Right. Exactly. So okay. in January, 1983, she ran away from home and went into hiding in Vienna with a friend from work. So at that point, that was early eighties. She was like, I'm done with this. My dad has been abusing me for roughly six years and I, I don't want to deal with this anymore. And she ran away. Um, she was found by police within three weeks and returned to her parents. 
She rejoined the waitress course and finished in mid-1984 and was offered a job in a nearby town called Linz. On or around August 1984, Elizabeth turned 18 and Fritz lured her, her own father, lured her into the basement of the family home saying he needed to help. He needed help carrying a door. So this was the last piece needed to seal what would turn out to be the chamber where Elizabeth was held captive. She carried the door she down carried herself. She uh, her own door to, that would help. Oh, that's awful. She carried the door that would keep her captive for 24 years. But after that's she awful. held the door in place while Fritzl fitted it into the frame, he held an ether... It's ether, right? Ether. Ether soaked yeah. towel on his daughter's face until she was unconscious and then threw her into the chamber. Isn't that just, it sounds like some kind of weird horror movie. It really does. It really does. Yeah. I'm surprised it hasn't been made into a horror film yet. I'm sure it probably has in Europe. Right. Like After, it's like a, it feels like a Rob Zombie horror film. Right? Um, after Elizabeth's disappearance, her mother filed a missing persons report. So the mother immediately was like, hey, my daughter's missing. I know something is not right. And after a, about a month, Fritzl handed over a letter to the police, the first of several that he had forced Elizabeth to write while in captivity. The letter was postmarked in a nearby town and stated that Elizabeth was tired of living with her family and was staying with a friend. And because she'd run away before, they were people weren't overly suspicious. Um, she, warned right. her, she warned her parents in that letter not to look for her or she would leave the country. So Fritzl told police that she had most likely joined a religious cult. So he's like throwing out everything he can to try to make it look like, oh, yeah, she ran away on her own. She's good. Let's not look for her. She's fine. We don't need to worry about her. But over the next 24 years, Fritzl visited Elizabeth in the hidden chamber almost every single day. A minimum of three times a week, bringing her food and other supplies and, of course, abusing her horribly. Um, After his arrest, he admitted that he repeatedly raped her. Elizabeth, of course, gave birth to seven children during that captivity in the basement of that home. One of the children died shortly after birth, and three were removed from the cellar as infants to live with Fritzl and his wife. Interestingly enough, this was approved by local uh, social services authorities who had also sort of verified that they were acceptable foster parents. Scary, right? Wow. Officials said that Fritzl um, very plausibly explained how three of his infant grandchildren had appeared on his doorstep. And of course they didn't say, oh, these kids look like him. They didn't even question it. Right. But the family received regular visits from social workers who saw and heard nothing to arouse any suspicions. And unfortunately, this is all too common. We're going to talk about another case where somewhat of a similar situation occurred. But it seems like when you hear about these kidnapping cases, these horrific crimes where people are being held for long periods of time, often authorities come to the house to inspect and find nothing out of place. These men who do this and perpetuate these crimes are so good at hiding it that it just it it pretty much camouflages whatever is going on, but following well, and it's not just men too because in the um, Gypsy Rose Blanchard case that was the Munchausen by proxy where she kills her mom. Yeah, her mom had been reported multiple times to the police, and every time the police came, she was able to convince them that she was you know a single parent and her daughter was severely disabled and she was doing the best they could she could with yeah. the, recent, the limited resources she had and then they just left 
please just left every time. It's really horrifying how good some of these people are at lying and pretending and faking that everything is perfectly normal. Following the fourth child's birth in 1994, this is around the time when I was getting into college there, Fritzel allowed the enlargement of the prison. So she had this very small space, but it had previously been about 380 by 590 square feet, putting Elizabeth and her children to work for years, digging out soil with their bare hands. So he basically like, they had this tiny room and he's like, you want to have more space? Here you go. Start digging. No tools, just your bare hands. It just sounds fucking awful. The captives had a television, a radio and a video cassette player. Food could be stored in a refrigerator and cooked or heated on hot plates. And Elizabeth taught the children to read and write. So she kind of acted as their teacher. At times, Fritzl shut off the lights or refused to deliver food for days in order to punish them for God knows fucking what. Um, He told Elizabeth and the three children who remained that they would be gassed if they tried to escape. So they were really like convinced that he was going to kill them if they tried to do anything that was remotely wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. investigators concluded that this was just an empty threat to frighten the captives because there was no gas supply to the basement. He stated after his arrest that he told them that they would receive electric shock and die if they meddled with the cellar door. So this guy is just a fucking piece of work. He was going into the basement every morning at around nine o'clock ostensibly to draw up plans for machines, which he sold to firms. That was sort of how he made his money. And often he stayed there for the night and did not allow his wife to bring him coffee. A tenant who rented a ground floor room in the house for 12 years claimed to hear voices from the basement, which Fritzl explained was from the faulty pipes or the gas heating system. Scary. So they had, so they had, it was him and his wife, the three quote unquote found children that they were fostering uh-huh. and then they had a tenant that lived in the house too. Uh-huh. and no one discovered this woman and her children living in the basement fucking wow. horrifying right and like if yeah. you're married to someone and they tell you never to go into the basement you're gonna go there i mean was well, he and that also, horrifying? you remember the lori it just never seems like a good idea to hide have a shit thing and like, be like that. don't ever look in this it just seems super suspicious and i would immediately be on like alert high alert and maybe that's just yeah, my sure. like my criminal mind is fast at work but i just find that extremely hard to believe that someone would let somebody have a space like that never go down there never check it out never see anything in it ever and be okay with that right, um, right. i'm i'm not that trusting no me either so the discovery interesting 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 on april 19th 2008 this is, you know, 20 some odd years into this captivity, Fritzl agreed to seek medical attention after Kirsten, the oldest daughter, fell unconscious. So this is his own incestuous child, falls unconscious. Elizabeth helped him carry her out of the chamber and saw the outside world for the first time in 24 years. Oh my gosh. So he then forced her to return to the chamber where she remained for a final week. Kirsten was taken by ambulance to a local hospital and was admitted in serious condition after life-threatening kidney failure. Obviously, she's got a lot of toxins in her system. She's not had sunlight. She's not getting a proper diet. She's not being taken care of, and she starts suffering from kidney failure. Fritzl later arrived at the hospital claiming to have found a note written by Kirsten's mother, you know, not saying that that he knew the mother or anything, but he claims to have found this note. He's Mm -hmm. trying to cover his tracks. He discussed Kirsten's condition with and the note with the doctor. Medical staff found aspects of Fritzl's story puzzling and alerted the police. 
on April 21st, who then broadcast an appeal via public media for the missing mother to come forward and provide additional information about the child's medical history. Police reopened the case file on Elizabeth's disappearance at that point. Uh, for whatever reason, but Fritzer repeated his story about Elizabeth being in a cult and presented what he claimed was the most recent letter from her dated January 2008, posted from a nearby town. Of course, the police by that point are like, this is complete bullshit. (laughs) We are experts on this sort of thing, and they raised doubts about the existence of the group that Fritzel described. He noted that Elizabeth's letters seemed dictated and oddly written and was like, this is just way too fucking suspicious. Elizabeth then pleaded with her dad to take her to the hospital. He then released her from the cellar on April 26th, along with her two other children, Stefan and Felix, who were there with her in the basement and brought them all upstairs. They all went to the hospital where Kirsten was being treated. Following a tip-off that Elizabeth and Joseph were at the hospital, the police detained them on the hospital grounds and took them to the police station for questioning. So at that particular point, Elizabeth didn't provide any more details until they promised her she would never have to see her dad again. So he had that much of a horrific pull over her. But over the next two hours, she told the story of her 24 years of captivity, telling the police that her father had raped her and forced her to watch pornographic videos, which he made her reenact with him in front of her children in order to oh, humiliate God. her. Can you imagine that? That That is just fucking disgusting. That's Short, so awful. <clears throat> shortly after midnight, police officers completed their interview. At that point, Fritzel, who was about 73 years old, was arrested on suspicion of serious crimes against family members. Their criminal system obviously is a little bit different in that particular place in Austria. But on the night of April 27th, Elizabeth, her children, and her mother, Rosemarie, were taken into care. Police said that Fritzel told investigators how to enter the basement chamber through a small hidden door opened by a secret keyless entry code. Rosemarie had claimed that she had been completely unaware of anything that was happening to her daughter. Police later announced the DNA evidence positively confirmed that Fritz was the biological father of all of Elizabeth's children. His defense lawyer said that although the DNA test proved incest, evidence was still needed for the allegations of rape and enslavement. Can you fucking imagine? What? That's just disgusting. How in the world? Seriously, like she did it willingly. Are you fucking kidding me? So, and around May of that year, police said that Fritzel had forced Elizabeth to write the letters the previous years. And this guy claimed he was going to release her and his children anyway. The letter said that she wanted to come home, but it wasn't possible yet. I mean, he just made all kinds of bullshit excuses and it's disgusting. Interviewed about 100 people who had lived as tenants in the Fritzel apartment building in the previous 24 years. 100 people lived as tenants with this woman below in the basement for 24 years and no one found her. A little bit of background about the cell, but Fritzl's property in in Amstetten is a building dating from around 1890. It's a huge building. Um, A newer building was added in about 1978 when Fritzl applied for a building permit for an extension with the basement. In 83, building inspectors visited the site and verified that the new extension had been built according to the dimensions specified by the permit. He then illegally enlarged the room by excavating space for a much larger basement concealed by walls. Around 81 or 82, according to the statement, Fritzl started to turn his hidden cellar into a prison cell. He was getting ready. He had thought about this for a long fucking time. Um, He installed a wash basin, a toilet, bed, hot plate, and refrigerator. In 83, he added more space by creating a passageway to a pre-existing basement area under the old part of the property of which he was the only one that knew. Um, He then concealed about a 55-yard corridor, a storage area, three small open cells, connected by narrow passageways, and a basic cooking area with bathroom facilities. He then had two sleeping areas, which were equipped with two beds each, 
This covered about 590 square feet. The cell had two access points, a hinged door that weighed about 1,100 pounds, which Holy is thought shit. to have become unusable over the years because of its weight, and a metal door, right. which, reinf- which was reinforced with concrete on steel rails that weighed about 650 pounds. So there was no way she was going to be able to get out of this place on her own. And it, it almost sounds like he designed this entire new because it was a new, a new apartment building that he built right no this was an old building sounds- but he just made refurbishments on this place through the years oh. and expanded the basement i just said the building was dated from around 1890 so this i know was but a- then you said you, he applied for a new building permit yeah to extend the basement oh i was thinking it was another additional building okay. no you have to in in many countries like this you have to apply for a permit for everything from building a fucking fence to like putting a door in the basement like you have to per- apply for permits for everything in a lot of these places and you still have to here as well but according to uh court documents this particular s- location the hiding place the chamber for elizabeth was located behind a shelf in fritz's basement workshop it was protected by an electronic code entered using a remote control unit. In order to reach this door, five locking basement rooms had to be crossed. To get to the area where oh. Elizabeth and her children were held, eight doors in total needed to be unlocked, in which two doors were additionally secured by electronic locking devices. Fucking horrifying. So here's kind of the date of events, how this whole thing kind of went down. Fritzl began sexually abusing his daughter in 1977, Elizabeth. It doesn't really say whether he abused any of the other children, but it does sound as though she was kind of his muse, like the one that he wanted to kind of focus on. Right. In 81 or 82, he begins to turn the hidden cellar into a prison cell. In August 84, he lures Elizabeth to the basement and imprisons her. In November 86, Elizabeth had a miscarriage in the 10th week of pregnancy. So I'm kind of surprised that she didn't get pregnant until then. Maybe because she was malnourished and, and unhealthy, possibly. But in 88, her first child is born and lives in the cellar until 2008. In 90, she has another child, Stefan, who also stays in the cellar until 2008. In 92, she has another daughter named Lisa. In May 93, a nine-month-old, at nine months old, she is discovered outside the family home in a cardboard box, allegedly left there by Elizabeth with a note asking for the child to be looked after. So she has another child and he takes that one and puts it outside the house in a cardboard box. And it's like, oh shit, look, foundling let's keep it wow so evidently it wasn't just a random foundling it was elizabeth's child and she had said hey here's my kid look after it i'm out of here right in 93 after repeated requests by elizabeth fritzel allows the enlargement of the enlargement of the prison putting her and her children to work digging out soil with their bare hands in uh, February 94, the fourth God. child, Monica, is born. In December 94, 10-month-old Monica is found in a stroller outside the entrance of the house. Again, another foundling-type situation. Afterwards, Rosemary receives a phone call asking her to take care of the child. The caller sounded like Elizabeth, Elizabeth but it was assumed that Fritzel used a recording of her voice. Rosemary reported the incident to the police, expressed astonishment that Elizabeth knew their new unlisted phone number. So she's starting to say, okay, shit's not adding up, but she still doesn't suspect anything is crazy. In 96, Elizabeth gave birth to twin boys. One dies after about three days and Fritzel removes and cremates the body. The surviving twin is taken upstairs at 15 months old and discovered in circumstances similar to the other two that were brought upstairs. In December 2002, Felix is born. According to a statement by Fritzl, he kept Felix in the cellar with Elizabeth and her two children because his wife could not look after another child. And it wasn't until April 2008 that Fritz 
allows for the critically ill 19-year-old Kirsten to be taken to a local hospital. So all the rest of the kids are then discovered shortly thereafter. And then March 2009, after a four-day trial, and three weeks before his 74th birthday, Fritzel pleads guilty to the charges of the murder by negligence for his infant son and grandson, Michael, as well as for the decades of enslavement, incest, rape, coercion, and false imprisonment of his daughter, Elizabeth, and is sentenced to life imprisonment. Good. But it's interesting. This guy was born in the 30s. So he grew up as an only child by a working mother. His father had deserted the family when he was about four. So he never again came into contact with his dad. His father fought as a soldier in World War II and was killed in action in 44, even though his son never knew him. But um, in 56 was when he married Rose Marie. Um, After completing education at HTL Technical College with a qualification in electrical engineering, Fritz, Fritz then obtained a job and started working as a uh, contractor. He became a technical equipment salesman at one point, um, and then continued commercial activities in similar fields later. In addition to his apartment building in Amsterdam, Amstetten, sorry, where he held his daughter for 24 years, he rented out several other properties. So Fritzl didn't, he did have a little bit of a criminal record as well. So in 67, he broke into the Lynn's home of a 24-year-old nurse while her husband was away and raped her while holding a knife to her throat, threatening to kill her if she screamed. According to the annual report for 67 and a press release of the same year, he was also named as a suspect in an attempted rape of a 21-year-old woman and was known for indecent exposure. So none of this came up when his daughter went missing? No, evidently not. Fritzl was arrested and served several months, 12 months of an 18-month prison sentence. In accordance with Austrian law, his criminal record was expunged after 15 years. As a result, oh, Jesus Christ. Right? As a result, more than 25 years later, when he applied to adopt and foster Elizabeth's children, the local services, service authorities didn't discover his criminal history. So, let's see. He married in 656. So, all of this shit happened during the course of his marriage to Rosemary. And she didn't fucking care clearly she was like all right cool let's make this happen i'm all about like criminal records being expunged for like drug charges or whatever but if you commit a violent crime and that should stay on your like that's that's endangering people in the future to have that removed from your record that's fucking horrifying right Um, so he claimed that his behavior towards his daughter was consensual just insisted up until the very end. And I think the only reason that he kind of capitulated was because this trial was underway and they knew that they had evidence otherwise. But he says, according to statements, I am not the beast the media makes me to be. Gotta disagree with you there, buddy. After, this is scary. Regarding his treatment of Elizabeth and her children in the cellar, he explained that he bought brought flowers for Elizabeth and books and toys for the children into the bunker, as he called it, after... And often watch videos with the children and ate meals with Elizabeth and the children. He decided to imprison Elizabeth after she did not adhere to any rules anymore when she became a teenager. That is why I had to do something. I had to create a place where I could keep Elizabeth by force if necessary away from the outside world. He suggested that the emphasis on discipline in the Nazi era during which he grew up might have influenced his views about decency and good behavior. So he's like blaming it on the Nazis, basically. (laughs) Right, and like interesting that he is the only one that seems to have done this. Right, and out of everybody that grew up in Nazi Germany and Nazi uh, 
Austria. He seems to be the only one who, who this affected this way. Well, people were saying that he had said all that because he planned on preparing an insanity defense, but Evelyn, that did not happen. Just disgusting. That's awful. It's such an awful story. It is. And the fact that, you know, he clearly did a shit ton of planning with this. This was not a spur of the moment, like insanity type thing. He planned this out very, very carefully, built, you know, collected supplies, just fucking awful. And I don't know... I'm not well-versed in Austrian law, um, but I'm assuming that their insanity law is probably something similar to ours, where you have to not know the difference between right and wrong, you know? And I don't think making eight locking doors before you get to this bunker, I don't think that that is not knowing what you're doing is wrong. I have no fucking clue. But um, what is particularly disturbing to me is although he has been sentenced to life imprisonment, he still can get parole after 15 years. What's the deal with 15 years in Austria? I don't Is know. that like some magic <clears throat> magic time limit where they have where everything like just goes away? It sounds like it. And he accepted the sentence and claimed he wouldn't appeal. But he's currently serving out his sentence in Garston Abbey, a former monastery in Upper Austria that has been converted into a prison. Sounds like a lovely place. Oh, how nice for him. He could also get out on parole. Scary, but he said he was seventy four, so he's going to be like an old fucking man when and if that ever happens. But a little bit of a story about the kids and Elizabeth and how they're doing now. According to the authorities in Austria, they are in relatively good health. After being taken into care, Elizabeth and all six of her surviving children and her mother were housed in a local clinic where they were shielded from the outside environment and received medical and psychological treatment. Obviously, that's going to be an ongoing thing for the rest of their lives. They were offered new identities and emphasized that it was their choice whether they wanted to take that or not. But they're all being treated um, and require a lot of therapy to have, even to help them adjust to the light after years in semi-darkness. They also need treatment to help them cope with all the extra space now that they had moved, had, you know, an area to move around in. They thanked the community. Um, Kirsten, the oldest daughter who was critically ill, um, was reunited with her family after she woke up. And and the doctors say she's going to make a full recovery. But as much as everyone says they're doing okay, it has been revealed by several sources that Elizabeth and her children are actually more traumatized than previously thought. Kirsten, the oldest daughter, started tearing her hair out in clumps and was reported to have shredded dresses before stuffing them in the toilet. Stefan could not walk properly because of his height. He's 5'8", which had forced him to stoop. He had been forced to stoop in that the cellar because it was only 5 feet 6 inches tall. It was also revealed that normal everyday occurrences like dimming of lights or closing of doors plunged the two oldest children into anxiety and panic attacks. The other three of Elizabeth's children were raised by their, who were raised by the father are being treated for anger and resentment at the events. At one point, Elizabeth ordered her mother out of the villa they'd been sharing in a secret location. Um, she was upset about Rosemary's passiveness during Elizabeth's upbringing. She's like, you know, you should have stuck yeah, up for me. That's what I was going to ask. Like, what's the relationship like with her mother? Because her mother is, is a victim. But at the same time, how do you not have some kind of anger? you know, for 24 years that, that she did nothing. Yeah. So and it, and it took some time for Elizabeth to kind of come to terms with this. And she was eventually reunited with the children that had been brought up upstairs. Um, the upstairs and downstairs siblings had also been reunited, but she, you know, suffered some breakdowns because 
paparazzi burst into her kitchen and started taking pictures oh at one gosh. point. But they were moved several times to undisclosed locations so they could have some fucking privacy. Um, they're obviously trying to get that ongoing therapy going and help everyone, even Rosemary, because evidently there was a lot of trauma on her end as well. But they're doing okay sure. now, uh, given all that's happened to them and learning to have normal relationships, play outside, do normal things. In June of 2013, workers began filling the basement of the Fritzel home with concrete. State liquidator stated, an estate liquidator stated that the construction would cost about a hundred thousand pounds and would take about a week to complete, or a hundred thousand euros and would take about a week to complete. The house would was to be sold on the open market. While most neighbors approved of the proposal, some preferred that the property be demolished due to the sordid history. The house was sold in 2016 and will be turned into apartments. In uh, 2017, Joseph Fritzl changed his name to Joseph Mayroff. So. All you out there that want to write him some nasty letters. He was probably due to getting into fights in prison that resulted in several of his teeth getting knocked out and other inmates setting up fake dating profiles with his name and picture. So evidently journalists who have interviewed him say he has shown absolutely no remorse for his crimes. He recalls he just kept saying, just look into the cellars of other people. You might find other families and girls down there. That is horrifying. (laughs) Just like fucking crazy right that is one of the most terrifying things i think i've ever heard you have the case of jc duggard or dugard right yeah dugard um so this is a pretty well-known story so we're we're going to kind of hit the high points and then and then we'll talk about it in the fall of 1990 the dugard family moved from la county which i didn't i knew they moved but i don't think i realized they moved from la county to the South Lake Tahoe area because they thought it was a safer community. They lived with, she lived with her mother, Terry, her stepbrother, Carl, and her half-sister, Shana. She had a really close relationship with her mom, but she was not as close with her stepfather. And her, her sister, Shana, was born in 1990. So she was just an infant when they, when they moved. So her biological father reportedly did not even know that he had a daughter. Damn. So he's not, yeah, so he's not in the picture at all. So that's kind of a little bit of a background on the family. And so on June 11th, 1991, 11-year-old JC got out and was getting ready for school. And she put on her favorite all pink outfit and she went to catch the bus. The bus stop was at like the top of the hill away from the house. And as she got about halfway up the hill, a gray van approached her. Her stepfather, Carl, was working in the garage. So he saw this whole thing. So he reported seeing a gray van or a car, depending on which which source you're reading. Wikipedia says it's a car, and then another article I found said it's a van. So this gray vehicle approaches with a man and a woman. They drive past JC, they slow down, and they make a U-turn and go back up the hill after her. Later, JC remembered that she thought the people in the van were just going to ask for directions, but when the car rolled down the window... The man tased her with a stun gun and they dragged her into the car. Yeah. So the stepfather, Carl, he immediately gets on his bike to chase after them, but they're in a car. He's on a bike, so he lost them pretty quickly. And I guess the bus had also come by at this point because some of JC's classmates also reported witnessing the abduction. Holy shit. Yeah. Can you imagine how traumatic that would be for a little kid to see that? Yeah. Let alone, you know, experiencing it. For real. And I mean, they're, they're 11, like, yeah. I mean, it's, they're old enough to for sure know what's going on. You know what I mean? Totally. 
the woman held JC down in the car as she drifted in and out of consciousness while they drove the three hours from JC's home to the town of Antioch, California. A little bit about her kidnappers. So Philip and Nancy Garrido. I have a little, I have more info about Philip than Nancy, which is kind of typical, normal, I think. Right. Yeah. So Philip was born in Pittsburgh, California in 1951. In 1972, he was arrested and charged with sexually assaulting a 14-year-old girl. Again, but the a history of violence or rape before the kidnappings seems pretty exactly. normal. Go ahead. In this case, though, the charges were dropped because the victim declined to testify, oh, which is also incredibly common. And she was 14. so Right. She didn't want to be exposed to all that fucking trauma. Right. And so in 1973, Philip married a high school classmate named Christine. She later stated that he was abusive and that he actually kidnapped her when she tried to leave him. Oh, my God. So, yeah. In 1976, Philip kidnapped 25-year-old Catherine Calloway from South Lake Tahoe. He took her to a warehouse in Reno where he raped her for five and a half hours. She was saved when a patrolman noticed a car parked outside the warehouse and then saw that the lock on the warehouse was broken. So the police officer knocked on the door and Garrido answered. And that's when Catherine asked for help. And so Garrido was arrested and charged in both federal and state courts because he took her from South Lake Tahoe, California to Nevada. So that would be a federal charge. Right. After a court ordered psychiatric evaluation, he was diagnosed as a sexual deviant and chronic drug abuser. And because this was the mid to late seventies, the psychiatrist further recommended a neurological exam because his chronic drug use could be responsible in part for his mixed or multiple sexual deviation. This test came back as normal because we now know that that's not really a thing. I mean, it can be a thing, but it's not, it doesn't make it in court. Garrido actually testified that he masturbated in his car when he would sit outside elementary and high schools while watching young girls. <sighs> Sick. And so, yeah. And so in 1977, he was convicted and sentenced to a 50-year federal sentence at Leavenworth. And he also got a five-years-to-life sentence in the state of Nevada. At Leavenworth, this is when he meets Nancy. So Nancy was there visiting her uncle, which is kind of a weird thing. I don't have a close enough relationship with my uncles to where I would visit them in federal prison. Right, but, me either. But maybe she was like yeah. into the criminal aspects and was like, hey, maybe I'll meet a handsome criminal man here. Yikes. Gross. Got to say, that's not. That's a thing. Maybe that was the tipper. That's a oh. fucking thing. Clearly it was for Ted Bundy's wife, right? That's true. Well, they knew each other before. So they married in 1981 at the prison. And in January of 19... 19- 88, he was transferred to the Nevada State Prison, where he began serving his five to life. He only served seven months and was released into federal parole in Contra Costa County in August of 1988. And I actually read somewhere else, an unrelated thing, that they don't have federal parole anymore. So maybe this was part of the reason. They moved, so Philip and Nancy moved to Antioch, where they lived with Philip's elderly mother, so she had dementia. So because he was a parolee, he was regularly monitored. And later, I guess when the technology was available, he wore a GPS-enabled ankle bracelet. Mm-hmm. But clearly this close monitoring wasn't that effective because only three years later, they kidnapped JC 
off the street in South Lake Tahoe, which was outside of his like area that he could travel. So we already talked about the kidnapping and it was three hours away from their home. Right. So when they got to their home, they had removed all of JC's clothing except for a butterfly shaped ring. She managed to hide for them, from them for her entire time in captivity. They, they threw a blanket over her head, handcuffed her and threw her into a freezing soundproof shed. And this is where Philip raped her for the first time. God. He, so after he finished raping her, he left and he bolted the shed door and he told JC that there were Dobermans outside that were trained to attack if she tried to escape. So this is another thing like yours. It's just that he used dogs, whereas um, your guy used like electric, like electric shocks, right? Or gas or threats of gas or whatever. Yeah. He would visit her a lot in the structure. He would talk to her and bring her food and milkshakes. So he's like, hey, and you're in this disgusting little shack of a shed, but hey, have a milkshake. You'll feel better. Right. And for the first seven months, he was the only person that she spoke to. She had no contact with anybody for the first seven months. So she later said, I craved human contact so much by then that I actually looked forward to him coming to see me. It felt like he was bestowing a gift to me, his presence. God. Philip would tell her that the quote unquote demon angels let him take her and that she would aid with his sexual problems oh and he was God. high on meth a lot and forced jc to listen to the imaginary voices he claimed to hear within the walls so he's like so like i said for the first seven months this is all that's happening shh, shh, yeah be quiet you can hear that yeah don't you hear that don't you hear that yeah fuck you know how crazy that would be this is around seven months around the seven month mark is when the time that is the time that she first met Nancy Garrido. And Nancy would bring her stuffed animals and chocolate milk and then would tearfully apologize for her. Like, that makes a fucking difference. Right. And JC later said that she craved Nancy's approval at the time, but later realized that she was being manipulated by her behavior because she would alternate between motherly concern and then cruelty. And she expressed jealousy toward JC because JC had Philip's attention and Nancy... Yeah, yeah. It was like seeing her as, like, competition or something. And at one point, Philip was sent back to prison for failing a drug test. And instead of just letting JC go because she had been apologizing so tearfully to her, instead she decided she was going to become her captor. God. And on Easter Sunday of 1994, they told her that they believed JC was pregnant. She was 13 years old, and she was four and a half months pregnant at this time. And they, she they probably has brought, no fucking clue what's going on with her body. She she probably has no idea. She's 13. Well, so they brought her TV so that she could watch. She couldn't watch news or anything like that, but she that's how she actually learned about the link between sex and pregnancy was by watching TV. Oh, my so that, God. And she had to rely on watching TV programs on childbirth to prepare for the birth of her first daughter, which was on August 18th of 1994. And her second daughter was born on November 13th of 1997. So this is kind of her life. She's just living. She's got her kids. And that's pretty much all she has. She has Nancy. She has uh, Philip, and then, and then her two daughters. At that point, you have but, to be taking it like day by day, like day by fu- hour by fucking hour. Right. Just get through this day and right? start over tomorrow. Right. Not too long, though, after they brought her back, maybe within that first year, she actually, they let her go outside, like in the backyard. And this is when the Garrido's neighbor, Patrick McQuaid, said he met her through a fence. 
And she actually introduced herself as JC. And when the neighbor asked if she lived there or was just visiting, she said she lived there. So she clearly been there long enough to know that this, that she wasn't leaving and that she needed to, she need, she knew she needed to stay, that she lived there. Yeah. But that's when Philip came outside and took her back indoors and he ends up building an eight foot tall fence around the backyard. So completely enclosing them. Oh my God. And they found, they found a diary and she would like sign in her journal, JC, and they made her stop using her name. So like from this point forward, she's not allowed to use her own name. So she, because she was able to go outside, like he built like tents and stuff for her so that nobody could see them. And, uh, she passed the time by planting flowers in a garden and she homeschooled her daughters. At one point, Philip told JC that in order to make Nancy happy, JC's daughters had to refer to Nancy as mom and that JC had to tell them that she was her, their older sister. She so by now, I guess she's old enough that they, they've had her long enough to where she she has like that learned helplessness of I'm not even going to try to escape because there's no no use in me trying What's to escape. What's the point, right? She starts working in Garrido's print shop. She acted as the graphic artist. So a lot of people came into contact with her and they didn't report anything strange. And he and Philip also kind of started starting to become more and more mentally unwell and he kept a blog that he called god's desire church and the blog was like associated with this church or whatever i'm sure it was well thought out intelligent yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) yeah 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 because like we talked about before when you're literally hearing the word of god you're you're definitely doing and doing math simultaneously and and that right Which are probably completely unrelated, the fact that you're doing meth and hearing the actual... No, God probably told him to do the meth. I'm sure he did. (laughs) I think that's really common. So so he claimed he had the power to control sound with his mind. I do Uh, too. Oh my God, what a coincidence. I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty common. That's not that unusual at all. And he asked several people, including his customers, to sign testimonials confirming that they witnessed his ability to control sound with his mind. And and he also had a device that he developed for others to witness this phenomenon. Can you imagine? You just go to pick up your fucking business cards and some guy's like, hey, (laughs) sign this. You know I can control sound with my mind, right? Can you sign this? Like, how does he have repeat customers? Or is it just like they're like, okay, I'm never coming back here? I don't know. Maybe they just thought he was like, oh, that's just quirky Phil. Classic Phil controlling sound with his mind again. Oh my God. Sorry. Oh, classic Phil. Anyway, there's a, there's a whole bunch of missed opportunities because remember he is a parolee and parole officers are coming by his house a lot. Police failed to make the connection that JC Lee Dugard was kidnapped south of South Lake Tahoe, which is yeah. the same location as Garrido's 1976 kidnapping and rape of Catherine Calloway. Right. So they did not make that connection at all. And less than a year after her kidnapping, a man called Contra Costa County Sheriff's Department from a gas station less than two miles from the Garrido's home and reported that he saw JC in the gas station staring intently at a missing child poster of herself. Oh my God, how freaky. And then the caller reported seeing her leave in a large yellow van, possibly a Dodge. And in 2009, after her release, an old Dodge description of the van given in the call in 1992. So 17 years passed between when this person calls in and says he saw J.C. Lee Dugard and 
identified as a fan and and they didn't and nothing happened. In 2002, a fire department responded to a report of a juvenile with a shoulder injury that occurred in a swimming pool at the Garrido's home. But this information was not related to the parole officer, who had no re- no record of either a juvenile or a swimming pool at the Garrido's address. So his parole officer, like he, because he's on parole, he's not supposed to have any contact with children or minors. And so all of this is being called in, but nothing is happening. In Additionally, in 2006, one of his neighbors called 911 to inform them that there were tents in the backyard with children living there and that Garrido was psychotic with sexual addictions. The deputy sheriff spoke with Garrido at the front of the house for about 30 minutes and left after telling him there'd be a code violation if people were living outside on the property. A sheriff's deputy actually went to the house and talked to him and nothing registered about sexual abuse or their children living on the property at all. He just said, hey, it's illegal to have tents that people are living in. How she is found. So in, he, he basically did this to himself. Like, I don't know that she have, that they ever would have been found had he not done all of this stuff that we're about to talk about. So on August 24th of 2009, Philip Garrido visited the San Francisco office of the FBI, and he left a four-page essay containing his ideas about religion and sexuality suggesting that he had discovered a solution to problem behaviors like his past crimes. Isn't that always how it works? <laughs> yes, I fixed myself how- here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's an essay explaining how I did that. You're welcome. So it described how he cured his criminal sexual behaviors and how that information could be used to assist in curing other sexual predators by, quote, controlling human impulses that drive humans to commit dysfunctional acts. But yet he's so still continuing to, to do it. So, like, how is that a cure? You have the extent of my knowledge on the matter. Okay. <laughs> or is he, like, claiming that he wasn't doing it anymore? He was just holding her captive. He wasn't raping her anymore. Yeah, that I don't know. I don't know if he decided that because he wasn't raping her that he was cured. I'm not sure. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. That's all right. So on that same day, he went to a UC Berkeley police office with the two daughters of JC and asked a, asked for permission to hold a special event on campus as part of his God's Desire church program. He spoke with a special events manager and she perceived his behavior as erratic and that the girls were sullen and submissive. So they were like 10 or 12 and like 15 or something at this point. The, the daughters were. So this this events director at UC Berkeley, her name was Lisa Campbell. She asked him to make an appointment for the next day. And so he makes an appointment and he left his name. And officer Allie Jacobs discovered through a background check that Burrito was a registered sex offender on federal parole for kidnapping and rape. And when he, this is the crazy thing. Like this is how he did it to himself because he and the girls returned for their appointment the next day. And this officer, Allie Jacobs, made a point of sitting in on this meeting and noted that the girls appeared to be pale. Like they hadn't been exposed to a lot of sunlight and their behavior was unusual. And since Garrido's several parole violations were a basis for an arrest, she called the, the parole officer to relay her concerns and left a report um, on, on the meeting of the meeting on the voicemail. Two parole agents got this voicemail and they drove to the Garrido's house later that day. Upon arrival, they handcuffed him and searched the house, finding only his wife, Nancy, and his elderly mother at the home. Parole agents drove him back to the parole office. 
in route, he said that the girls who had accompanied him to UC Berkeley were the daughters of a relative, and he had permission from their parents to take them to the university. And they were like, sure, okay, sounds good. (laughs) Yeah, checked out. So a month before the parole office had borrowed, barred Garrido from being around minors, and Berkeley was 40 miles from the Garrido's Contra Costa residence, which was 15 miles outside the limit that he was allowed to travel without permission. But they just kind of overlooked all that. And after reviewing his file with the supervisor, they drove him home and ordered him to report to the office again the next day to discuss further his visit to UC Berkeley and the follow-up on their concerns about the two girls. I don't understand how you're just like, okay, well, just go ahead and come back the next day because we have concerns about these two children in your care. I don't, I don't understand that. I don't understand why he would come back either. I'd be like, oh, fuck, I'm in trouble later days and not come back. Well, he, remember, he can control sound with his mind. Oh, yes. That, I get so it. Okay, it's okay. It's possible he that makes sense. hear it. That makes sense. I don't know. But he, again, he comes back. So he goes to the parole office with his wife, Nancy, the two daughters, and JC, who he introduced as Alyssa. It's like, I can the fix this. Officer. I can fix it. I know I can. Let's go. We can, we can do right. this. <laughs> this is all part of my God's desire church nonsense so the parole officer actually did something smart here and separated Garrido from the women and the girls to obtain their identification jc still maintained that her name was Alyssa and that the girls were her two daughters and she was aware that Garrido was a convicted sex offender but that he was a changed man a great person and he was good with her kids oh my god and these these comments were echoed by the two girls when pressed for details that would confirm her identity, JC became extremely defensive and agitated, demanding to know why she was the one being interrogated. And she subsequently stated that she was a battered wife from Minnesota and hiding from her abusive husband. Good Lord. Coral officer eventually ends up calling the Concord police. And upon arrival of a police sergeant, Garrido admitted that he had kidnapped and raped her. Only after this did JC identify herself as JC Dugard. And in a 2016 interview with Diane Sawyer, she stated that her compassion and willingness to interact with her captor were her only means of surviving. And the phrase Stockholm Syndrome applies, implies that hostages cracked by terror and abuse become affectionate towards their captors. Well, it's really, it's degrading, you know, having my family believe that I was in love with this captor and wanted to stay with them. Okay. I mean, that is so far from the truth that it makes me want to grow up. I adapted to survive my circumstance. Got it. Repeatedly during this segment of the interview, she stated that as a way to survive and hoping to end the abuse, many victims are forced to sympathize with their captors. So Garrido and his wife were placed under arrest, and an FBI special agent put Dugard on the phone with her mother, and she retained custody of her two children and was reunited with her mother. Okay. After this, so it it seems that there she she has actually written a book, JC Dugard. Um, it's called a, a stolen life and I actually have it. I haven't read it yet though, oh. but I do want to, I, I am going to read it. So following the arrest, police served the Garrido house extensively for evidence of other crimes. And because Garrido had access to his neighbor's house, how do you, I don't understand that. It, they start, basically they searched the neighbor's house for evidence. So they searched the homes and businesses of one of Garrido's printing business clients and, Police agencies from Hayward and Dublin, California, conducted searches of the Garrido's property for evidence pertaining to missing girls from those communities, but they turned up no clues. So 
in 2011, which I did not know before I started looking into this, the Hayward police announced that Garrido has not been eliminated as a suspect and is still a person of interest in the abduction case of Michaela Direct, who was kidnapped in 1988 in Hayward, which is 55 miles from the Garrido's home. Yeah. In 2009, in an interview from his jail cell by telephone, Garrido said, in the end, this is going to be a powerful, heartwarming story because in his version of the event, my life has been straightened out. Wait till you hear the story of what took place in this house. You're going to be absolutely impressed. It's a disgusting thing that took place with me at the beginning, but I turned my life completely around. What the fuck? What a psychotic, crazy loon bin. So they pleaded, he and his wife both pleaded not guilty of to charges including kidnapping, rape, and false imprisonment. They set the bail. He actually did get bail, but it was $30 million. Damn. Uh, that was, that was, oh, I'm sorry, that was just for Nancy. There was no bail for, uh, for Philip. Yeah. Basically, they said, all right, you can have a bail hearing, but it's going to be so high that you're not getting out of out of jail before your hearing. The trial, it took a long time to actually get started, but in April of 2011, the Garritos actually ended up pleading guilty to kidnapping and rape by force. And Philip was sentenced to 431 years to life, and Nancy received a sentence of 36 years to life. Okay. And JC did not attend the sentencing, and she wrote a, a written message, which her mother read aloud in court. She actually ended up settling with the state of California for $20 million to compensate her for... Various lapses by the corrections department that contributed to Dugard's continued captivity, ongoing sexual assault, and mental and or physical abuse. Good Lord. And, yeah, and that's the story of J.C. Dugard. It's a really long one. It's a a rough one, but... So go read the book if you guys want to hear more about this story, which many people probably will. Go read her book. What's her book called again? It's called A Stolen Life. And you can find it on Amazon and... bunch of other platforms please go look at that um and support her because obviously she has a very interesting compelling and heart-wrenching story to share um really quickly before we end the episode today um i just have some facts to share about kidnapping statistics kidnapping in the u.s remains one of the most common crimes in the country But Mm -hmm. the federal government estimates about 50,000 people were reported missing in 2001 who were younger than 18. Only about 100 cases per year can be classified as abductions by strangers. So it's very, very rare for a stranger to kidnap a child um, like the J.C. Dugard type of case. Right. And it is more rare, but the ones that actually end up in murder are the ones that are the non-familial kidnappings right those have a really high risk of not ending up well so kidnapping is illegally confining decoying kidnapping abducting seizing or taking away a person and holding them for ransom or prize or nothing at all really kidnapping of a person can be punished by imprisonment up to life if kidnapping results in the death of a person, it could be punished by execution or life imprisonment. In the United States, a child is abducted about every 40 seconds as per the statistics presented by the United States missing children. So this kind of children of the age group 4 to 11 years old are half the number of the total reported abductions. Almost wow. 500,000 kidnappings go unreported, evidently. 
And these could be mostly parental type abductions, which could be why mm -hmm. some of them don't get reported, but they are definitely underreported. But uh, data from the FBI's National Crime Information Center shows that the total number of persons missing has risen by 468% from 82 to 2000. And that there has wow. been about a 100% increase in the last six years alone. Worldwide, about 30,000 kidnappings take place. This is the re total reported number. Haiti ranks as the first in the 10 riskiest places in the world that experience the most number of kidnappings, while Mexico comes in second. Over 55% of the total kidnappings in the world take place in Latin America. Yeah, I think I did know that. There is an increase in the number of kidnappings every year. According to the statistics, there has been a tremendous increase in over, of over 100% in the number of people missing each year as we continue to move through the years. Um, there's also an increase in the average ransom payments every year. The average ransom mm. ranges between $500 to $100 million. Wow. Um, and about 70% of total number of kidnappings take place worldwide, get resolved by paying a ransom. And the number of victims who get rescued is about 10% of the total. And about 21% of the victims are left without ransom as the abductors or perpetrators feel that no ransom will be paid for their release. Yeah. Crazy, huh? I actually, I met somebody, um, he had in the past worked, for, worked as a lawyer for like, I guess it was a company that provided insurance or whatever for like when you travel, like personal insurance. Right. And he said that like paying ransom and negotiating a ransom is incredibly common. Like we don't hear anything about it, but that it happens all the time. Yeah. Evidently um, South America, Latin America has a tremendous number of those ransom type cases. I think a lot of those occur in and around Mexico, unfortunately, which is pretty frightening. Yeah. Um, we are going to go ahead and wrap up the episode for today on that note. This week, we're going to have a bonus episode though. So stay tuned. That will probably be put out on Wednesday of this next week. You want to plug our social media, Darcy? Yeah, so we are at on the we are at the BFD podcast on the Twitters, and we are at the same at the BFD podcast on Instagram. So go check us out and go follow. Awesome! This is the point where we say goodbye, so long, farewell. Please rate and review and subscribe to our wonderful little podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send us an email. We are more than happy to answer those. Those are at the BFD podcast at gmail.com we will put that into the show notes please join us again next week when we talk more about weird wacky and wild stuff good night podcast peeps stay safe keep it real and always live your very best life bye goodbye